session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Uh, again, I'm doing the show both on Radio Hamra and live on Instagram. So thank you for everyone who's tuning in, uh, however you are listening. So let me get to the books of the week. So I'll talk about a book tonight, but this week's book of the week is Upstream by Dan Heath. Upstream, the quest to solve problems before they happen. And actually I thought this would be an interesting book now. I bought it about a month ago, but it says the quest to solve problems before they happen. And with everything happening now uh, with the coronavirus pandemic, we see that we were not prepared to deal with this situation. We didn't anticipate some of these problems before they occurred. And so I thought it might be timely to read that now. But the book I'll talk about tonight is Boys and Sex by Peggy Orenstein. You might have tuned in last week and I talked about her other book uh, on this same topic, Girls and Sex. Uh, This one is Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity. And just like with her other book, Girls and Sex, or I shouldn't say other books, she's written many, but the one uh, in the same topic. Uh, I really enjoyed this book and she did a similar thing. She interviewed about, I think, 70 or 100 young men to ask them questions about their lives and when it comes to hookup culture and different aspects of masculinity and sex and what they were going through and also interviewed psychologists, sociologists and other experts to gain their insights as well. So again, she was having the conversations with the boys, which is one of the main messages of the book as well is that we need to have these conversations with young boys, young men about sex, sexuality, relationships, masculinity. And so I think it's nice that she shows us that also by doing that, having these conversations. And so highly recommend the book to anyone, but especially if you're a parent and a parent of uh, boys or men, this might give you some insights into what they're going through, what's happening in the current culture and surrounding issues related to sex and relationships, but also what you can and hopefully things maybe you won't do as far as dealing with them. And the last chapter alone, which I'll talk about, um, really, as they say, is worth the price of admission. It's a great chapter kind of summarizing everything that's been brought up, but then giving some, in a way, pointers to parents or individuals having these conversations with the younger generation that I thought was fabulous. And I'll talk about that as well. So I'll go through some of the different chapters and aspects uh, of the book. Um, Again, highly recommended. This is Boys and Sex by Peggy Orenstein. And uh, so, um, so she talks about at first, you know, she wrote the book Girls and Sex, and most of her work has been on girls and females, but she realized she needed to tell the other side of the conversation if she was going to tell the full story. And that's what this book does. Um, the first chapter is about masculinity. And so we've heard a lot of terms like toxic masculinity 
which I think is true. But sometimes these phrases lose their meaning when people just think of them as a phrase uh, to catch all and to just say, you know, it's bad to be a certain way. But we really have to look more closely at what are the things we are teaching men in general, but especially our boys. And so a lot of the boys she interviewed, um, they would say things like a man has to be physically strong and athletic, but also shouldn't have feelings. They um, shouldn't feel things. And this reminds me of something you hear amongst, especially men, but men and women, but boys will hear more things like if they're dating someone and if they start to like that person, people will make fun of them essentially and say, oh, you've caught feelings. You're getting feelings for that girl. And the way they say it is they're actually making fun or looking down on them for having an emotional feeling or connection for this person they're dating or hooking up with. And so it shows us how much uh, we're teaching boys that it's good to not have feelings for women, to not care about them. And so she also talks about different aspects of the media, um, from movies to music, that reinforce this as well. Um, but we have to be aware of the messages we're giving to boys and to men in general about what it means to be a man or to be masculine. And unfortunately, a big part of that tends to be not having feelings other than, let's say, anger, uh, or some happiness, but not being sad, not being vulnerable. And men and women and everyone pays the price when men are not allowed to feel the whole range of emotions. She actually used a word I hadn't seen before. I think it was emo diversity, um, which is basically the range, diversity of feelings, emotions someone expresses. And so we give the message to boys and men um, that there's a limited acceptable emo diversity for them. Uh, and I think it's actually very sad, something I've seen a lot uh, in individuals I work with, couples, but just in society at large. Men are allowed to be angry much more than they're allowed to be sad. And all of the emotions should be okay. We should have all those emotions. But the problem is when we limit some of the feelings that people can have, what we're doing is we're saying that it's okay for a man to get mad, let's say, at his partner, but he can't express sadness towards that partner. And so sometimes uh, someone, a man might be hurt by, let's say, his girlfriend or his wife or partner. And because they don't feel comfortable to express that hurt, they instead get angry as a way of expressing that. And they might not even realize what they're doing, but that's something that we see happening. So we have to be aware of what boys are being told. And also we know, you know, there's quote unquote locker room talk, which doesn't mean anything goes in locker room talk, but it can bring out when boys are together, men are together, this more negative side of um, not caring about women, sexual prowess, and thinking about women in a sense of numbers. How many have you been with? What have you done? How experienced are you in this competition to be this sort of man in the way that it's been defined? And of course, um, the boys and the men pay a price, but also society at large as well. Um, there's a whole chapter talking about porn very important to look at because a lot of young people, boys and girls, their first understanding and exposure to sex is through porn, unfortunately. And they're, you know, I want to say learning, but really mislearning a lot about sex through this unrealistic expectations um, about themselves, about their partners, about what sex is going to look like. And it's very accessible. So you might think as a parent, I'm going to put blocks on their internet and things like that. And you should, uh, but just be aware that there's a good chance that they'll always be one step ahead of you. And so you think you might be 
restricting their access or they won't be able to access graphic images and videos, but a lot of times they find a way or they go to a friend's house or some other way to, to get access to it. So don't think um, just because you don't want your child to watch pornography that they won't. Unfortunately, very often they will at a young age. And this is uh, the theme that I'll also share throughout is another reason why you want to talk to your kids about sex. Would you rather your kids learn about sex through you, even as uncomfortable as that might be, or through pornography and through other types of things? So um, this is why we want to make sure we talk to them about pornography. But she was talking about the different uh, types of experiences boys had had. For example, some of them watching pornography and getting so comfortable with pornography that it could affect wanting to have actual genuine sexual relationships or dating people in real life. Uh, also affecting their feelings about themselves, how sexually um, confident they can feel in their own bodies if they could not do what they were seeing in these videos. So um, it's a very important topic and one that's uncomfortable to talk about, I understand. But that's the whole theme for me of this book is that talking about sex is an uncomfortable conversation, but we can't afford not to have those conversations. We can't afford to just ignore it by um, ignoring things they don't disappear they don't go away we just don't help our kids face those things with more information as i talked about last week in the book girls and sex um, sometimes we think abstinence only will be the best way to teach our kids to just not even think about sex but most of those programs show that they might prolong the start of intercourse or start of sex by a few months on average but also we see people who are given abstinence only education tend to have higher levels of unwanted pregnancy and stds because we're not teaching them the realities and the consequences of what is going on so because of that um, we are unfortunately not equipping them to face the real world I have sometimes people ask about the the book the book is again boys and sex by peggy orenstein um, then there's a whole chapter devoted to experience. And again, this pressure that the boys could feel about being experienced, how that's going to make them look if they're not experienced. Um, and also throughout the book, another theme that's important is that we sometimes make assumptions that, okay, all boys and all men, they always want sex or they don't want emotional connection because that's what we tend to talk about. They're always available sexually. And a lot of the boys would share stories about wanting to have more of an emotional connection, not wanting just sex or not wanting to just be available in that way um, but feeling like they had to because of this pressure to be masculine in the ways that it has been defined and prescribed to them and so that's also something to keep in mind that we might make assumptions about what boys um, are going through what men are going through but we have to be aware that it, it's much more complicated than that and they have unique experiences and they also might uh, feel, unfortunately, like they can't talk to anyone. That was also a theme that I recognized in the book and that was talked about actually very explicitly at some points that a lot of times boys, they can't open up to each other or they feel like they can't in an emotional way to be vulnerable because it looks weak. You shouldn't be that way. And so sometimes they only have girls or the girl they're dating to open up to. But this is not a, a great way for them to be able to connect. And what I've actually experienced with uh, people I've worked with in therapy is sometimes they'll talk about being in a relationship with their girlfriend and they break up 
And now they have no one to open up to because their girlfriend was that person, but now they're broken up. They don't have that person to talk to and they feel very alone. Uh, and we know that men are more likely in general to turn to things like alcohol or other coping mechanisms to try to get away from those feelings. And women, females are more likely to um, talk about things, to actually explore it more emotionally. And I'm, you could say some of that is natural and maybe it is, but I also think a big part of that is cultural and the gender norms and roles that we have that say that this is okay for a man to do and this is not okay. So it's not okay for you to cry and uh, go to friends and be crying about it because that shows that you're quote unquote weak or don't have that manliness that you should have. Um, so it's easier for you to turn to other things to try to mask that feeling. To get drunk after you've broken up can be much more acceptable for a man than to cry to his friends, even though I would hope they could have that option of crying to their friends as well. Uh, I was also happy there's a whole chapter devoted to gay, trans, and queer guys, boys. Um, she shared those stories and the unique experiences they might have, including um, the story of someone who was trans, who uh, was a trans boy, and he experienced when he was a girl, being the kind of girl that boys would make feel bad, tell her she was hot and I want to do this to you and do that to you, explicitly, essentially, uh, sexually harassing her. And then now she was, uh, when she transitioned to be a, a boy, she would be around the swim team that she was on and they would talk about girls sometimes in that way. And he shared his experience of how, it was interesting, that unique experience of being on both sides, of being a girl who gets talked to in that way, and then now being, quote unquote, one of the boys and hearing them talk that way about the, the girls. And that was quite interesting. So that was a very interesting chapter. Again, um, there's this theme that when we don't allow uh, boys, whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, whatever it is that they're going through, talk about what they're going through and have experiences um, a lot of times these young boys were going on an app called Grinder or other apps and meeting with older men to have sex, or at least men older than them, um, because they didn't have access to a lot of people to explore their sexuality or to talk about it. So um, that was quite an eye-opening chapter, and I'm glad she had that chapter. And also the next chapter related to uh, boys of color and the unique experiences, for example, that African-American boys might have. Uh, and also Asian boys and sharing their stories uh, was also quite interesting. And, and there's a lot of themes in the book that are uncomfortable to talk about. This one chapter, chapter six, was a great one called I Know I'm a Good Guy But. And essentially the whole chapter, that whole that phrase right there, I know I'm a good guy but, is about a lot of these guys, men, who think they're a quote-unquote good guy, um, but they've done things to make a woman feel uh, either coerced, pressured to different uh, degrees, uh, making them feel like they have to perform sexually or do something for them that was not okay, that was not fully consensual or did not, um, it was not something the person wanted to do. And, and it's quite eye-opening because we tend to think, and she talks about monsters, we think of these men that are rapists, for example, you know, they jump out of the alley to someone they don't know and forcibly rape them. And of course that does exist but it's a much smaller percentage of the total number of sexual assault and rape cases that are happening are happening this way. Uh, the phrase date rape has been around a couple of decades and acquaintance rape. Um, and unfortunately, the sad reality is a girl is much more likely to be assaulted by someone she knows or is even 
involved with in some way, who might push the relationship sexually where she does not want to go. And so it's this acknowledgement that rather than recognizing or thinking of it as there's these monsters out there and they're responsible for all the rapes and the horrible things that's being done to these women, it's realizing that it's a lot of times guys you know. It could be yourself. And you have to take a look in your, the mirror and really think, have I ever been that guy, that person? And by that guy, I don't mean there's only some people that do it, but in that moment acting in that way. And so um, we have this tendency. So if you know someone and you hear a story, well, let's say he pressured a girl a little bit or he did something and there's like, oh yeah, but you know, he's not like those other guys that do stuff. He's a good guy. And so we have to try to think about what does that mean being a good guy? Can you be a good guy and take advantage of someone, sexually assault someone, uh, make them feel uh, in a way less than or that they're not uh, being treated with respect? And that's something really we have to think about a lot closer than we do. We usually just think of it, well, there's the bad guys and everyone else. Oh, no, no, they're a good guy. They wouldn't do something like that. Um, and of course, all this, all these topics are related, not to ever justify someone um, committing any level of sexual assault in any way. But we know that when there's pressure on boys and men to have sexual experiences, um, to treat women without respect, to think I'm better than them. Um, you know, you listen to rap music and every type of uh, movie and things we'll talk about, trying to just get the girl, treat them bad, not give them much respect, not invest almost anything in the relationship and just get what you want, using essentially the girl is kind of something to aspire towards. So when we bombard boys with these messages, and then of course they could be seeing porn, and which also is going to further exacerbate some of those concepts of using the female to just give you the pleasure that you want, that you're the only one that matters. Um, how could we not expect it's going to have these types of impacts to make it more likely for these things to happen? So all of these issues are going to be interconnected and to change one of them, we have to really start to change all of them, changing the culture and the mindset and the ways things go. And uh, very importantly, that means we have to have the conversations. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm at a commercial break and I do want to continue talking about this book because there was so much there and I'm going to come back uh, again. The book is Boys and Sex by Peggy Orenstein, but I'm going to go over that last chapter where she is a little bit more prescriptive based on the things um, that come up throughout the book about how you can talk to your kids, your boys, about sex and what are the important things to to make sure you mention. So let's go to commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, so I'm going to continue the discussion on the book Boys and Sex by Peggy Orenstein. I uh, highly recommend the book. Um, it's uh, Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity. And so, um, as I mentioned, the last chapter I think is great. Even if you um, just get a chance to read the last chapter, I recommend it. I hope you read the whole thing. Uh, but the last chapter is titled Deep Breath, Talking to Boys. So again, uh, it's about having the conversations. We need to talk about these things. They're not going to go away. This is a big thing in a lot of cultures, but especially in the Persian culture and Iranian families, I see it so much where we're so afraid that if we talk about something, it makes that thing happen more. So if we talk to our kids about drugs, 
we're giving them the green light to do drugs and they're going to do more drugs. And so if we talk to them about sex, we think that means they're going to get involved with sex at a younger age. But as I mentioned before, the research on abstinence-only education shows that it, it might prolong intercourse uh, briefly, if that, but what it also does is because they're not informed of the actual consequences and what they can do to help mitigate the things that can happen in a sexual relationship, you see higher levels of pregnancy that's unwanted and uh, STDs. So by not talking, we're not helping. And what I always think is when you don't talk, people just suffer in the dark when we don't talk about things. So if you don't talk to your kids about sex, they're going to be curious about sex. They're going to try to find out about sex. And it's either going to come at least partially from you or not at all. And you will leave them really in this vast ocean by themselves where they're unfortunately going to get more misinformation and bad information and take them down a bad path. So uh, the conversations are important to have. And the good news before I even begin some of these things she shared, and she does mention this too, you don't need to have all the answers or to have been perfect in your own life and love and relationships and sex. That's not necessary to have conversations. And actually, you hopefully will come from that space. It's not that I know everything. It's not that I'm perfect when it comes to anything, but I want to have these conversations with you. And that's the thing. You're having a conversation, not a lecture. So don't think you have to prepare a PowerPoint about sex and give your kids this long lecture about it. Uh, lots of parents, especially Persian parents, are very big on lecturing their kids. They think that's how you teach them. That's what you're supposed to do. But what's more important than the lectures, which usually they're not even listening to at all, they tune you out once you start talking, is to have a conversation. I want us to talk about um, whatever this topic is. Not that, because I know everything, but through a conversation, hopefully we can both learn, but I can teach you some things. And also you'll know that you can talk to me about this topic. And that's so important when it comes to anything. Uh, even I've talked before many times on this show about suicide. And the reason why I talk about it is that it is a taboo topic, one that people avoid, one that people think we shouldn't bring up. Again, we think if we talk about it, it might make it more likely to happen when that's almost never the case, that talking about suicide introduces the idea to someone to do it. But if we talk about suicide, then you actually allow your child, even if they're not suicidal, even if nothing like that is happening, that if they ever get to that point, they know they can have that conversation with you. So the way I think of it is like you're building bridges of different types of topics that can be talked about. And when you have that bridge about, let's say, suicide, about sex, about drugs, about alcohol, your child now knows I'm allowed to have this conversation with my parent. They can handle it. It's okay. We've done it before. You're laying these bridges of conversation and connection between yourselves and your child, and that is vitally important. So don't think that by ignoring it, it's going to go away. Don't think by ignoring it, it won't happen to your family. Um, by ignoring it, you're just not doing everything you can to teach your child and to comfort your child and to be there for them if they want to come back to you and ask you more. So the first thing in this, that last chapter, I really like that you put, it's not the talk, quote unquote. And by that, she means it's not going to be one conversation. So usually that's how you hear it in American culture. They say, um, did your parents give you the talk? And what they usually mean is, did your parents talk to you about sex? And specifically, usually they don't just mean about sex in a bigger deal of like oral sex and everything that relates to it, but they mean about pregnancy and basically where kids come from, so to speak. 
Uh, and as she puts it, it's not going to be just one talk. Don't think of it as I'm going to talk to my kid and that's it. I did my part as a parent. It's about, again, opening a dialogue and discussion. And it should start from a much younger age. Even it could start, uh, she mentioned this in the book about uh, the Dutch and uh, in Netherlands, how they do things a little bit different, a lot differently from here, but about talking to them about their bodies from a young age. And this actually uh, can help them in protecting from sexual assault as a child is showing them this is your body. You are uh, the one that's in charge of your body. If something feels good to you, you can allow for that. If something doesn't feel good to you, doesn't feel comfortable, you can always say no, no matter who it is, even if it's mom or dad or whoever is the person, which I know a lot of parents might not like. They think it's my kid. I want to hug them. I want to kiss them. I should do it anytime I want, whatever way I want. But if we want to teach them to have that value for themselves, that they can stick up for themselves, we have to show them that even with me as your parent, I'm a, I want you to have that that space, that agency to say, you know what? I didn't like the way you hugged me. And hopefully you'll respond in a way that shows, oh, thank you for letting me know. So I know you don't like that or you don't want it right now. And I won't hug you or kiss you if that's not what you want. To show them that if they're in another scenario with someone who um, is hurting them, unfortunately, much more than what you're doing, they'll know that they're, they don't have to take it. They can stick up for themselves. They can say something to that person and they can come tell you about that. So we can have this conversation from a very young age of connecting children with their bodies, that this is your body. Um, you have the agency over what happens, what doesn't happen. You can tell anyone what you like and you don't like, and you're going to respect that. And, and also, especially as they get older and respect other people's as well. Everyone has this right to say, I don't like this. I do like this. Um, and so again, this is a thing, of course, as a parent, it must be as horrifying to even think of the prospect of your child being sexually abused by anyone. But the threat is real and that it can happen. So it's not that we're saying um, you, we want to make you paranoid, but we know it's really out there. And what we're trying to do is help you to be prepared and also to prepare your child and better defend your child against what might happen. So it's about realizing there's a real threat and helping to prepare um, your child for facing that threat. So it's about having a, t a talks conversation. It's not one thing. And also it's not just about sex and having kids, but all of intimacy and all of other issues, which I'll get to that. It's not just about, again, I've check checked that off my box as a parent. I had a talk with my kid about sex and even, uh, that's it. And even the way you do it will have an impact because if you make yourself look so uncomfortable and if you make it seem like this has to be quick and let's get it over with, well, of course your child won't feel so comfortable to bring up things later. So hopefully when you bring it up and then bring it up throughout their lives, it's in a way that shows this is okay terrain. We can have this conversation. Um, one of the sections about consent is crucial. And of course, this goes for boys and for girls, um, but especially for boys talking about what consent means. Again, your body is your body. Someone else's body is their body. They're allowed to say what they want and don't want. And you have to respect that just like they should respect it when it comes to you. Uh, and even more about yes means yes, which is something that's becoming more common when they talk about consent, that you want some affirmative consent, not just, well, the person didn't say no, which unfortunately sometimes people use that, well, they didn't say no, they must have been okay with it. Um, but teaching our boys, you know what, if you're with someone, you make sure they're okay with whatever's going on, ask them, make sure 
It's a conversation. Don't just assume. A lot of times, actually, boys will, and men will assume a woman is more okay with what's happening than they are. So don't avoid those conversations. Be a good partner, which means making sure your partner is okay. So that's a consent, but then it goes a step further that sex is not just about consent. So consent is a very low bar. Uh, and I mentioned this last week too, as it was coming up with girls and sex. Of course, we never want our boys, anyone to engage in sex that's non-consensual, but it's a low bar, meaning that, okay, we should definitely make sure it's consensual, but are they okay and enjoying what's happening? Are they um, also satisfied? Something that came up last week was that it's very common in hookups or in a lot of sexual encounters between males and females for the male's pleasure to be important, but the woman's, the female's not to be. And this starts even in hookups and also can continue into adults, even in marriages, you'll see it sometimes where it's about the male's pleasure. And so we can teach boys that this is not the way it is. Uh, in all aspects of life, we want to be considerate of whoever we're engaging with. If you're having, uh, you know, listening to music, okay, are both people enjoying it, watching a show, if you're having a good time, whatever it is. And of course, this also extends to the sexual realm that we shouldn't just think, okay, consent, they were okay with it. I don't have to care about anything else. We can teach our boys to be more caring, compassionate partners in all aspects of the relationship, but including the sexual relationship, that it's not just about you. It's about whoever you're with as well. So consent is a low bar, a necessary bar, but we want to go beyond that. Also, it's not just about inter intercourse, which she talks about. Again, when we think it's just to have that talk to talk about where babies come from and what can happen, we don't educate them about everything else that goes on in sex as far as oral sex, other types of sex, kissing, touching that can happen. Um, and also, of course, about STDs and other things as well. So you don't want to limit the talk to just about intercourse, and that's all that it is. And then the next section is not just about sex. We want to talk to our boys and girls, of course, um, but in this book, it was focused on boys, about relationships, about love, about the importance of being vulnerable. And actually, I like that she talked about uh, how fathers can be very involved with this because um, that male role model showing you that it's okay to be vulnerable, that as a man, you know, not this uh, type of mentality of, okay, doesn't matter, get what you can, you know, you're just supposed to enjoy the process, enjoy whatever you get, and there's nothing to worry about. We can teach them to be respectful, that you always want to respect your partner, that it's more manly or maybe just more strong as a human being to care about your partner, whoever they are rather than just worrying about getting what you can to, to feel good about yourself and tell other guys and girls about what you've done in your experience. We can show them what manliness means and that it doesn't ever mean hurting someone, uh, disrespecting someone, or not caring about what they want and what they're feeling. And so um, she shared how some of the boys wished they had the conversations with their fathers and others had and how important that was. And I thought that was very important because... At the end of the day, both men and women, everyone, is going to be responsible to create the positive changes we want in any aspect, even in changing something like how masculinity is defined or um, valued. Because men, of course, with each other, will give each other clear signals about what's okay, what's not okay. Um, but also women play a part too. So there are women that won't be attracted to a man who's being more vulnerable. Um, and it's not to say you can just 
change what you're attracted to like a light switch, but the pressures on boys and on men are not just put on by men. It's both. So we have to be aware that everyone is going to be involved in bringing about this change. But I thought it was very interesting to think of as a father, how you can have a big influence on how your son thinks about himself, thinks about women. Of course, this is assuming they're heterosexual, um, about how to interact with them, how to be respectful, and hopefully value respect, love, compassion, uh, consideration about your partner much more than just thinking about yourself. And a lot of men, especially in the Iranian culture, we see this even more, where a lot of times the man is told what you want is what matters, what you feel is what matters. And considering your partner is not something that's really even thought about. Um, and that's quite important. So again, the book, I highly recommend it to anyone. You could, yeah, for teenagers, I know someone asked this during the break uh, on the Instagram Live, but especially as a parent, read this uh, and then talk to your kids about these things. We have to have the conversations. And one of my goals of this show is to have conversations that itself will make it more okay to talk about things because you'll hear me talking about them and it makes you more comfortable talking about them. But then also to then encourage people to have these conversations in their lives, uncomfortable conversations in romantic relationships and family relationships uh, with parents and kids because what you see as a therapist very often is people coming in and you see the pain of those unhad conversations in various aspects of life. So I always uh, am wanting to encourage that, encourage people to have uncomfortable conversations. Sex is definitely one of those topics. And I really appreciate Peggy Ornstein for writing Girls in Sex and also Boys in Sex uh, to help us navigate first what's going on in, in the realm of, of sex and uh, hookups and all these things that the gen younger generation are dealing with. And of course, we, the older generations have as well, um, but also to encourage the conversations. And she has those conversations throughout the book. So I really enjoyed it. I uh, hope you'll check it out. Boys and Sex by Peggy Orenstein. Again, a big thank you to my friend Heather who recommended this book, which also led me to read the other one as well. So let's go to our last commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, during the commercial break, got to get some questions from the Instagram live. And one of the questions was about some issues related to uh, uh, sex and dating. It was a few different ones. But um, one was about interracial dating, which is an interesting topic. And so I wanted to talk about that. Um, so if we just look and maybe just not dating, but relationships and, and marriage, definitely, I, I think interracial marriages are more than okay. Um, what we want to do is taking a step back and what even makes a good partnership or people a good match. And in general, what we want is for people, two people to be as similar to each other as possible. Now, similar doesn't mean they have to be the same race, but that they have to be aligned on a lot of different characteristics and things. And so the more different you are, the more it can create um, issues and hardships. A relationship is going to be hard no matter what two people we're talking about, but the more different you are, the more challenging it's going to be. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean that people of different races cannot be together. Absolutely not. Uh, it just means that you have to see how aligned you are on everything, including culture. So 
what's interesting is we think of culture sometimes as this black and white kind of thing. I guess uh, no pun intended, but we think of it in that way that it's just, okay, you're Iranian, you're um, Chinese, you are Mexican, you are whatever that is, and that's just your background. But of course, it's much more complicated than that. So I'm uh, technically Iranian American. I was born in the United States, have Iranian parents, so I'd be considered Iranian American. Now, someone who just moved from Iran to America five months ago might technically be considered Iranian American too, but culturally, me and that person would be very different. So just because by name we are both Iranian American or Iranian, um, that doesn't mean that we are a match when it comes to culture. And this is why I think it's it's interesting sometimes people will say, and not just say, will do this action of just, well, I live in America, I want a wife, I'm going to go find one in Iran and bring them here and have a marriage. And it could work, um, but it's it's starting at a disadvantage because you're going to be culturally from a different place. Now, if you've only been here a short time, or if you feel like you're much more Iranian, maybe it'll allow for it to be a better match. But just this assumption that two people by name have the same cultural background or ethnic background means that they're the same when it comes to their culture is not the case. Um, I actually did my dissertation in, in graduate school on acculturation, which is uh, essentially when immigrants or someone to a new culture, how they incorporate and adopt those that culture. So when we consider someone who's very acculturated here in the United States, that means they've, maybe we'd use the term Americanized. They're very much more American. Someone who is not as acculturated means, let's say, they've held on more to the Iranian culture. So uh, first, we have to be aware of that, that just not looking at labels. I know we think of it as labels, and even we ask each other, oh, what are you? Um, and it's becoming less common, but that used to be, what are you meant? What is your cultural background? She actually talked about it in the book, how that question is, is changing, and sometimes people think more in the terms of gender um, identity. But so we tend to think of that label as so important, when to me, that's less important than who you are as a person culturally. Because you might be very American, even though your parents were both Iranian, and so you might be very matched with someone else who is also um, American. So it is good to find someone more similar to you, but I don't think we, when we think of it as in this way, again, binary, either or, you can date someone out of your culture, you can't. Um, I think definitely you can, uh, but it's looking at those similarities and differences between you and that person. And so culture is, is one thing. And so when we think of culture, it includes a lot of things. Uh, sometimes when we think of culture, we think of language, we think of music, we think of food, we think of art, which is definitely all part of culture. But culture extends beyond that. It includes very often our thoughts and feelings about right and wrong. What's a good way to live and a bad way to live? And this is why, um, you know, Iranians living here in the United States, they'll say, oh, no, our kids are becoming like the American kids. And that really scares them because they're saying us Iranians have higher, you know, moral superiority or, you know, more cultured. They like that word, but somehow more sophisticated, better way of living. And our children are going down this bad route of life. So it extends beyond just those types of surface things of, you know, language, uh, food, art, music, 
and also includes morality, right and wrong, and also gender roles, which I'll, I'll t- touch on as well. So that's something to be aware of, that we take that with us too, that feeling of this is a better way to live and not good way to live. Um, overall, I think we hopefully will start to reduce the significance, and we see that happening in the world, of ethnicity and race. Um, race is this very interesting thing that it's a social construct, meaning that we've created it socially. It doesn't have uh, a way that we can define it, let's say by blood test or genetic or um, other types of factors that would make it very easy to define what is race. But it has a lot of value in today's world. And to me, it's similar to the concept of money, which is also a social construct. But of course, people value it very, very highly. We can't say it just doesn't matter. So race does matter in our world. Um, but I think it's becoming less and less so, which I think is good. And not to sound cliche, but what's happening now around the world with the coronavirus, it unfortunately, in the, in the sense that it can cause more harm, doesn't discriminate, meaning that anyone can get it from whatever race or background. So we are reminded, unfortunately, through this pain, uh, painful experience we're going through as a planet, of our oneness of our humanity, that we are all human beings and we all can get exposed to this. We all can have it and transfer it to each other. In that way, it doesn't discriminate between race and reminds us of our humanness, of that uh, essential one human family that we are. And I think that message of it is, is good. Again, not that it's hurting so many people, but that it's a reminder of that common humanity, that we can look at each other as one human family even within one family, people can look slightly different or might be different in certain ways, but we don't consider them not part of the one family. Similarly, we give so much significance to things like uh, skin color um, and maybe even eye color or other things, but especially skin color, but it doesn't have to be as important as we're making it. So that's just a side um, comment or commentary on that, that the way we look at race Unfortunately, still, we give it too much significance in a negative way, meaning that we think of it as something so divisive um, rather than seeing the commonalities uh, of all human beings, which I think is so important. So again, in this, um, we're seeing how it's affecting everyone, whatever their race is, but also that we're all coming together to try to reduce the harm of what's going on. So I'm hoping that we take forward some lessons from what's going on of our common humanity and also that we can all work together to help one another even if it's not us whatever group you are or you as an individual might not be affected by something but we should all care and so i've talked about this on the show a few times already but i'll mention it again uh, there was lots of crises happening around the world before the coronavirus pandemic people living in um, war-torn areas people were living in um uh, poverty of different, you know, kinds. Uh, personally, um, many of you might know I tutor children who are experiencing homelessness, usually on Thursdays. That's something I've definitely been missing from my quote unquote normal routine. Uh, so there's children just, you know, 10 miles away from where we are here in Westwood at the Radio Hamra Studios who are experiencing homelessness. And so there's lots of crises that were happening before 
uh, all of this was happening. And so I've seen a lot of quotes and posts on this theme, which I really like that, you know, in this rush back to normal, I feel it too. We want our lives to go back to normal, um, but we want to make sure we pay attention to what parts of that old normal we still want to hold on to. And I hope we'll recognize that there was a lot of things that were not okay before all of this happened. And because of this reset, forced reset, as I've been calling it, that we've had to go through, maybe we can rethink some of the things that we accepted as this is just the way it is and has to be. Um, and even this book that I'm going to read this week, um, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen, um, it seems to have this theme that sometimes we have problems in the world or in a certain situation, but we don't even do something about it. We almost forget that we can do something about it. So I really hope uh, we won't forget the pains of those who are suffering before any of this happened and recognize that we can all come together to help people and it does make a difference and we can do that. So um, I, I hope we will take that into uh, our mindset going forward. But coming back to dating, because that was the original question, um, again, it does come back uh, or come down to our match. We have to look at a person and how aligned we are. And as I mentioned, culture includes gender roles. And so especially in, a, let's say, a heterosexual relationship, there are things that are prescribed. A man should do this. A woman should do this. So if you have a very traditionally Iranian, older generation, traditional type of mindset, they assume certain things that a man does this, a woman does this. A man does not do this and a woman doesn't do this. And related to those, a husband does this and a wife does this. And also there are things they don't do. And so if you have very different gender role expectations than your partner, this could lead to huge conflict. And so being of different cultures can create that conflict because you might have very different views of, well, this is just what a wife does. This is just what a husband does. And those assumptions will just be based on what you saw in your own home and in your own culture that can lead to conflict. And so um, I always tell partners before marriage to talk about this topic, about expectations. Uh, I know we all think, oh, I don't have expectations. I don't want to have expectations, but we all do. So what are your expectations from yourself, from your partner, from husbands, from wives, all those types of things in all aspects of life, from um, housework to even having careers, to raising children, to the sexual relationship, all aspects of the relationship can be affected by the gender roles, and we need to talk about them. So if you and your partner are from different cultures or you're wanting to date someone, it's important to examine these different um, types of factors and gender roles is a big one. But overall seeing, do you feel like you understand each other? Sometimes being with someone who has lived in a similar culture to you can allow you to uh, feel more understood or feel like you understand each other. Uh, and that's something to look at as well. But I think the idea that people should not date interracially does not make sense to me. It's definitely something you look at case by case and you see the partner, how um, aligned you are in so many different things, how well you get along. Soon I'm going to talk about the book Eight Dates by John Gottman, which I haven't read yet, but um, it does talk about having these conversations, I believe, having these conversations of getting to know each other and making sure you're more you're aligned. You might be attracted to each other. You might be really interested in each other. That's great. But there's so many conversations that are important to have and so many things to make sure you are in alignment with. Um, and so being from different races or being, you know, different ethnicities, it might be a start um, that you're, you feel like you're starting from a different place, but not necessarily. You also have to look at it. And it's a uncomfortable conversation. Do you have any assumptions about the race of your partner? 
And of course, we'd like to think we're not racist. We think of everyone as one, just like I was talking about. Even I want to feel that way. But we know that we even have unconscious assumptions about different races, different ages, everything. We can have these assumptions that we might not be aware of. And so you want to take a closer look at that because that could get involved and interfere with your relationship too. If you assume all Iranians are this way, all these people are this way, and then you're with someone of that background, it's going to have an effect. So it's something to take into account, but to me, it's definitely not a make or break type of a thing. If someone says they're from a different um, ethnicity that they can't be together. I do have to wrap up the show, but Sep, I think it was Sep. Thank you for that question. Again, the book of the week for this week is Upstream by Dan Heath. Look forward to sharing that with you. Uh, on next Monday's show. A big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jalakwi. Have a wonderful night. <laughs>